Well, let's see if Scripture agrees. So, we'll read now from today's passage in Ephesians 5. And I'll start in verse 8. Walk in light. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Hmm. It says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. It says here in verse 11. It seems that joining in perhaps isn't such a universally good idea after all. And that's what Paul's intention is here. He wants to reinforce the requirement of clear and total separation from evil that he introduced back in verse 8 with a contrast between darkness and light. And in that illustration, there was no trace of grey, was there? We were either children of darkness or we were children of light. There's no twilight zone in in between where we can have a bit of a play. It's got to be either one or the other. And that can be a bit difficult for us to hear because in the same way that we instinctively understand that we are social animals, we also hold the idea of compromise up as a great truth. So I just thought I'd pull out a few sayings about that as well. Compromise is the best and cheapest lawyer. The best thing to learn in life is the habit of compromise because it's better to bend a little than to break a loving relationship. And it's not always rainbows and butterflies. It's compromise that moves us along. Now, I wouldn't dare to say that these ideas are completely wrong. Well, you can see I'm compromising now. And that from this day forward, you should set compromise aside forever. Because because careful compromise is an important part of showing grace. And Christians ought to be gracious. But what we do need to get our heads around a little bit is the difference in this respect between humans and God. You see, humans are flexible and changeable. Depending on our strength of character, we can be completely different people from one moment to the next as we strive to fit the moment and maybe to fit in. Because of this, our compromise, compromises can be compromised. But God, on the other hand, is unchangeable and he does not compromise. And praise him for that, because if he were not, well, we would have about the same hope of salvation as we do of winning lotto. So, I just feel the need to have a quick little theology lesson here. That's unusual for me. Unchangeableness is one of God's incommunicable character attributes. Wayne Gruden defines it like this. He says, God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes and promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? So we'll start with this word incommunicable, which just means that these are things that are not able to be passed on. There are some things about God's character as understood from Scripture that humans do share in a lot, like wisdom and love. Now, I'd say a lot because, unfortunately, none of us are perfectly wise or loving like the Lord, although we can be quite wise and loving. So we are 
We're similar to him, but we're not exactly the same. And these things that we do share with God a lot are called communicable attributes. They are passed on to us. However, there are other things about God's character that we might at best share with them only a little, like unchangeableness. And then there are things that we don't share with him at all, like omnipotence and omnipresence. And these, of course, are the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, I wouldn't care to make you think that just because theological terms like unchangeableness have this terribly important and mostly unpronounceable um, description of being hard to share, that we can just set them aside as things to imitate or strive for. Not at all. In fact, they are the things that we most earnestly ought to desire because any progress towards living them out at all will make us more and more like God in character. So, in respect of unchangeableness, for example, a real life thing we could do would be to be more consistent in our obedience to God's laws and and the way that we stick to our word and so on. That would be a good way of trying to be more and more like the Lord. And that's not such a new idea, is it? What's the, what's the name that we have for that work? Here's a clue. It starts with an S and I mention it pretty much every sermon. Sanctification. Yes, somebody's listening. Praise the Lord. So we do need to know about God's incommunicable attributes just as much as his communicable ones. They are all important to us in the daily work of sanctification. Ooh, that was exciting. Try and keep it out of the fan. So, with that tongue and brain twisting aside, what is meant by God's unchangeableness? It means, and wait for this, it means that he doesn't change. And this is tremendously important for not just us, but actually every single thing in creation. Scripture tells us that God not only made everything that is, but he also keeps it existing every single moment of every single second. And let's just say it wasn't that way, that God did change his mind in random and unpredictable ways. (laughs) What about if today he decided to play around with gravity? Maybe make it ten times as much as it is now. What do you think would happen? Well, we'd all weigh ten times as much. We'd all be crushed to the ground, unable to move. And how about if tomorrow he decided he was bored with a bit so much oxygen in the atmosphere, so he just played around with that, and we were all left gasping for air. So God's unchangeableness is critical to our daily lives. Because he doesn't do those things, ever. We can count on him and, for that matter, thank him for the daily consistency of our physical world. But however important those physical things are, really they pale into insignificance when compared to God's promises of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. Because nothing in all creation has as much value as these. And yet, they are part of God's promises too. And in the same way that he doesn't fool with gravity, we can be quite certain that if we seek forgiveness for our sins and take Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that God 
will be faithful to his promises for eternal life. And this gives us great hope and certainty that will help us to endure when things go wrong, for we know for sure that much better things await us by and by. So praise God for that hope, for that certainty. By now I'd forgive anyone who can't remember why we started this discussion about God's unchangeableness. It was because we need to know the standard that we are to work towards when we think about and act out what it means to be children of light. Now I'm sorry, I'd like to let us all off the hook, but I can't, because there's no middle ground, there is no compromise to move us along. In this matter it's either God's way, or it's Satan's way, with nothing in between. Unlike us humans who mostly dwell in a grey negotiable space, our Lord does not change his position. He has always been righteous and holy. He is righteous and holy. And he will always be the same. So when we read that we should have no fellowship in the unfruitful works of darkness, then we should be very clear on exactly what that word there, it says, no, means. It means, wait for it, no. <laughs> darkness and light in the spiritual sense have nothing at all in common. And this is by no means a new theme. Consider how the Old Testament book of Psalm begins. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. There's that same separation again, isn't it? Blessed is the man who walks not. And Paul has also made a more detailed call for Christians to separate themselves from the practices of evil and evil people in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ? With Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. Almighty. Now, unfortunately, this passage is often misused to say that Christians ought to separate themselves entirely from those who are in the world. And this is where we end up with groups of folk who buy themselves a big farm and then have ten wives each. Friends, we don't want to end up there because, well, one wife is quite enough trouble. I mean, blessing for any man. When correctly read, however, we can see that this text begins with the instruction not to be yoked together with believers. And that's a very specific term because it is draft animals that are yoked together for the purpose of doing work. So what this text is really about is that believers should not be found to be doing the work of evil together with unbelievers. 
It does not mean that we should live with a bag on our heads or have too many wives. What is very clear, though, from this text and the others that we've just read is that the requirement for living holy lives is very well established. There is no question of dipping your foot into muddy water as you go along just for fun. And it is emphatically not the right response to the gift of salvation. The reason that we ought to live holy lives is because our Heavenly Father is holy. Because He loved us so much that He sent Jesus to save us at the cost of His own life. And because He continues to help us every moment of every day through His Holy Spirit. Our efforts for obedience to Him should never be driven by dry and dusty obligation or fear, but by love and by thanksgiving. For love is where it all started. And what is more, when we live in this way, it means that whatever we do, however we strive, our actions will always have real meaning. Now speaking of meaning, while working as an office sort of person many years ago, a cartoon came over my desk one day that seemed to perfectly sum up my daily life at the time. And I wish I could find it again, but even Captain Google has failed me in the search. So I'll just try to describe it to you. It had four panels. And the first one went like this. It said, Hi, I'm Mike. I'm a lawyer and I kept three people out of prison today. The second said, Hi, I'm Jane. I'm a doctor and I saved seven people's lives today. The third said, Hi, I'm John. I'm a primary school teacher and I taught 20 children to read today. And then the last one, Hi. I'm Mary, I'm a secretary, and I cleared the corner of my desk today. Now that I pretty much fear sums up how we sometimes feel about our work, doesn't it? We labour all day, and we fill a space and time, and we pay some bills, and we talk a whole lot, but it seems a bit pointless in the grand scheme of things. I don't really want to get into a debate about the relative merits, or otherwise, of your specific job, although it's worth mentioning that when we do everything as though it were specifically for the Lord rather than other humans, as it says in Colossians, then nothing that we will ever do will be meaningless. No, what I'm really interested with this illustration is that we all get some sense of that feeling of doing something but achieving nothing, because that is exactly what we are doing when we continue to share in the work of evil. It doesn't matter how hard we try to do bad things, they are still useless. Because it says here, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And the Greek word that he uses is akarpos. And that tells us something, because it's made up of two bits. A, which means without, and karpos, which means fruit. And that word carpus is the one that's used in our favourite passage in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit, the good things, the useful things that come from a relationship with God. So we must understand then that what is meant here is that sin, sin in fellowship, doing things together, is worse than being merely pointless because it is also godless. It does not have any of his merits at all. 
And I'd like to believe that all of us understand that very well. So I actually want to explore the thought of sinful deeds as pointlessness further because it will expose, I think, some useful truths. The idea that our actions ought to have holy intention is very important. It tells us that that what we do, everything we do, is very important to God. Now, of course, he hates sin because he is holy, but that's not what it says here. It doesn't say don't have fellowship with darkness because it is sinful. It says don't have fellowship with darkness because it doesn't achieve anything. It's a waste of what you do. Now, that may seem to be a new and possibly dangerous idea because we're told all the time not to do bad things because they are sinful. So how does that square up to not doing bad things just because they don't bear fruit? Let's try to think that through. Before I go any further, just let me say that sin remains sin. And that means that it's detestable to the Lord. And that clearly will never change. And I'm definitely not saying this idea of fruitfulness replaces that. Just that it's a different way of looking at things. It will hopefully broaden our understanding of why sin is offensive to the Lord. I want to ask a question first. What is the chief end of man? Yep, glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If that's so, if we are working at doing bad stuff and not good stuff, are we fulfilling that chief end? Are we glorifying God? No, of course not. And if we're not glorifying him, then we aren't achieving our main design goal. And that, friend, surely is fruitless. Secondly, what did we read about back in chapter 2, verse 10 of Ephesians? It said that we are his, that's God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that have been prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created for good work by God. And if that was his design and intention, then any work that we do that is good, that will naturally bear fruit. And also anything that we do that is bad, that was not intended, for us by God, well, it won't have any fruit, will it? It might be exciting or stimulating or fun at the time, but in the bigger picture, the eternal picture, our efforts will be utterly wasteful. And that's a shame because we only have one go at life, so whatever we do in it needs to count because there's not going to be any opportunity for regrets and a second try. So now we've identified two important and actually intertwined kinds of fruit, God's glory and good works. But you know, there's also some personal fruits that we can look forward to as well. Because the Lord has graciously prepared rewards for us in heaven. In 1 Corinthians 3.11 we can read this. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And this text is one of quite a number that reveal that believers will receive some kind of reward in heaven. It isn't clear exactly what this will be, but Scripture talks about things like a crown of life and and suggests that there will be status and authority awarded in varying degrees, depending on how our service is judged by God when Jesus returns. And although we can't tell precisely what to expect, we can have one great certainty. And that is, whatever the reward is, it will be very good. Because it comes from God. So here is the great personal incentive to serve the Lord as well as we can. The fruit that we bear can be sweet for us as well as for the Lord. We must guard against misunderstanding this promise though. Heaven will not be a place of regret or envy at all. Every person who gains entry there will be fully satisfied, completed by an intimate relationship with God. I really can't understand how, but I am certain that none of us is going to be wandering around wishing that we had hoped one more old lady across the road because we missed the crown of life by one point. And we won't be getting in a huddle to scandal about Muriel, who thinks she's so flash because she has authority over ten cities. No. We will be with the Lord in all his glory and we will all want for nothing. And what a glorious and gracious hope that is. But before I move on to look at the second part of verse 11, I just want to briefly go back to this matter of understanding this verse, the one about separating ourselves from unbelievers, and the one in 2 Corinthians to to mean the same. Well, I've left this point until now because it it didn't really fit with the flow of my thoughts before, but it, it needs to be explain further. The viewpoint of separation is not only wrong because it's based on poor interpretation of scriptures, but mostly because it ignores the example of Jesus. What does it say in Mark? Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house, and he of course is Jesus, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want to say right off that just because Jesus associated with sinners that he ever behaved like sinners. And so neither should we. But there's something that's very certain. I don't think we ever want to hear a sentence like, wait, it's okay for me to be in the pub. I'm just working on being like Jesus. However, what the Lord says in verse 17 is a powerful reminder of our mission to take the gospel to all the nations. 
and where we are to do our work. We must take the gospel. We must grasp it. It is a doing work. It is not a passive one. It is unusual for those who need it to come to us, but they surely can be found in the pub and at rugby games and wherever people congregate. Now for sure we ought not to be doing what they are doing there for the sin, but even in those places we can be modelling a righteous life. And there's a very obvious scriptural example of this that fills quite a large part of the Bible called the Old Testament. Israel was chosen by God to show what the proper relationship with the one true God should look like. A witness to all the nations of the power and the glory of the Lord. We may not be Jews, but our grief is exactly the same in that same respect. This is what it looks like to be a child of light, a friend of God. This is why you should follow him and not the world. These good works that we've been talking about are unlikely to be for our personal benefit. The Lord isn't going to be impressed if we point to a gigantic personal bank account and a nicely painted house and we stand before him in judgment. Look, Lord, look at my good works. They're all for me. No, we need to be doing our work somewhere else and that is most likely and most usefully to be done somewhere around and with sinners. It's what we do for others that we do for him and what we do for him that bears fruit and shines his light. So coming back to the text. What then if it seems that it's too late and we're already struggling and participating in the unfruitful works of darkness? What should we do then? It wouldn't be very unusual for any believer to have this problem. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if we're honest, all of us have. We were all sinners before we were saved, and although we've been reborn spiritually, we still have the same old flesh and the same old desires. Well, I think we have the answer right in front of us, don't we? When we read that rather than carrying on with doing these things, we should rather expose them. So what does that practically mean? Should I, should I write a letter to the paper about the bad stuff that I do? I don't think so. I can see two parts to the answer. The first part is that although we all know that God knows and sees everything that we do, and very intimately, do you remember what I said about him keeping all things going? That's how intimately he sees and knows us. Well, we still foolishly seem to think that a closed door makes it safe to sin. That's a bit silly, really, not that I would ever think that way. But we all do it, don't we? We try to cover up and hide our sins so that we can carry on enjoying it. So the first thing to do, stop. Just stop it. Be active. Do something different to repent, to change direction. And the first thing that we could do is lift our heads and our hands towards heaven to confess to God our sin and ask for his forgiveness and his help not to carry on with that sin. My wife will tell you that one of my 
problem purchase areas is torches. I have more torches than you can shake a stick at. In fact, just in my truck, I have at last count no less than seven light-emitting devices. Now, please don't ask me to explain why I have so many, because I can't tell you that. But what I can tell you is that some of them are very bright. Blinding, in fact. But God's light is far greater. It is brighter than any torch ever made. If we want to bring something into focus, to expose it for what it is, and no mistake, then the very best thing to do is to expose it to God. He will make all things plain and all things pure if we only turn towards Him and allow His light to shine into every single part of our lives. The second way that we can helpfully expose sin is to our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a saying that a problem shared is a problem heart. And I believe there's great truth in this. And in Proverbs we can read something similar. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Well, there are two sides to confession, aren't there? One confesses and another Here's the confession, and there needs to be grace and humility on both sides. Let's be very practical about how this can work. When we hear a fellow believer share their sin with us, it is a special privilege that needs to be honoured. We need to be sensitive to hold their confession in confidence, where appropriate, to listen more than to speak, and to receive what we hear with the knowledge that we too are sinners and therefore we cannot afford to condemn them. We can pray with them. We can help them to speak difficult truths and as more time goes by, we can help their healing by gently going back to ask how they are doing with that sin. And at all times, we need to remember that it is God who forgives and not us. We are merely an ear and a helper on the road. Perhaps tomorrow it might be our turn. When we are the one making the confession, we should be careful to find a mature believer that we can trust to counsel us with sound spiritual doctrine and to take that counsel in an appropriate place. Confessing to murder over coffee and muffins after the service will at least be exciting to those who are standing nearby. If we can find someone who helps us to conceal our sin or excuses us, then we know that we have gone to the wrong person. We must confess in humility, not seeking to excuse ourselves, but recognizing that by making ourselves open and vulnerable, we are beginning a healing process. There is a balance to be kept, though. Whilst we ought never to be economical with the truth or to hold things back that are important, we do need to be very careful about not sharing unnecessary detail. I find this helpful quote by John MacArthur. Some things are so vile that they should be discussed 
in as little detail as possible, because even describing them is morally and spiritually dangerous. Some diseases, chemicals and nuclear byproducts are so extremely deadly that even the most highly trained and best protected technicians and scientists who work with them are in constant danger. No sensible person would work around such things carelessly or haphazardly. In the same way, some things are so spiritually disgraceful and dangerous that they should be sealed off not only from direct contact but even from conversation. They should be exposed only to the extent necessary to be rid of them. Some books and articles written by Christians on various moral issues are so explicit that they almost do as much to spread as to cure the problem. We can give God's diagnosis and solution for sins without portraying every sort of detail. And our resource for exposing evil is scripture, which is the light, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The problem here is the flesh, is that we all have a little bit of voyeur in us. And if that were not so, if you want to argue that, then I would say that reality TV would never have been as successful as it has if we were not. And this being the case, I think it's wise to speak about only what really needs to be spoken about than enjoying unnecessary detail. But finally on this topic, a warning. <coughs> Flashing lights, etc. We must be very careful when we counsel folk deep secrets that they are the same sex as us. Because it is just too easy for spiritual and emotional intimacies to become physical ones. And that brings awful consequences. Many have fallen this way. We all know this. So none of us can afford to think that we are somehow immune to special. Well, you'll be pleased to know that we're very nearly done now and we've spoken a lot about the reasons for exposing hidden sin and some practical ways of doing so. But so far, we haven't actually directly addressed verse 12. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Now when you first read this, verse 12 seems a bit strange. It seems to offer contrary advice to verse 11. I mean, how can you expose the works of darkness, but you can't talk about them? How will that work? Maybe a game of charades. Three words, and it's a movie. So there's some disagreement about how to interpret this verse, but my take is that this is just simply a call to action. Because the really dark, dark and deep sins are simply not things that we will expose casually. Hi Dave, how are things going? Oh, fine, fine. You know I murdered somebody yesterday. In fact, twice. Oh, no, not again. Did they scream much this time? Well, of course we're not going to hear this kind of thing in casual conversation. The truth may need to be prized from us tooth and nail. And although that may be very difficult and painful, it is, like some other difficult and painful things, the only path to true healing. And that is ultimately what we have been reading about today. 
This text in Ephesians is a call both to hear and to be heard. It is the sound of grace. It reminds us that in the light of the Lord there is mercy and forgiveness. He wants that light to fill and define every part of us from top to bottom and side to side so that all things will be as they should for his glory and our good. We should not hold anything back. And why should we? C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, when we try to keep an area within us, an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. And there is no bargaining with him. That's dumb, really, isn't it? To hold on to a piece of death and darkness as though it was worth something. But we all do it. Why? When we could instead have life. So choose that life. Choose love. Choose grace. Walk as children of light. Give the Lord all that you are and all that you have. Be open to him and to one another for his sake. Let us pray. Lord, this is a hard text to hear because we all have things that we love to hide. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us courage to expose the deeds of darkness, to shine a light where it needs to be shone, to shine your light. Lord, help us to move forward from this place, to be healed, to become more and more like Jesus. In his name, amen. Well, what a great hymn to finish a sermon like that on. Great is thy faithfulness.